This is an RNZ podcast. Hey everyone, Melody here. Now I know we just released the final episode of Bang, so this is going to come as a bit of a surprise, but... Basically, at about halfway through season two, something happened that I didn't feel good about and it didn't feel right to just leave it and move on. So, the week we released the masculinity episode, I went down bad with a gastro bug. If you listen really carefully, you can hear the bits of narration that I recorded at that time and I do not sound good. Every week after the podcast goes to air on the radio, we host a live Q&A answering audience questions. But that week I just couldn't make it. So I listened in bed while Knight's host, Brian Crump, led the discussion. The person he was speaking with was John Brewerton from the Essentially Men Education Trust. It's an organisation that we hear does really great work, helping men to gain a deeper understanding of themselves, that kind of thing. Which is why I was disappointed and a little shocked to hear John say this. I certainly think for men, men have to come together and sort their shit out. Um, But I also think the woman... Now this, I might get myself into trouble here, but you know the Me Too movement, which is a blame movement, is um, it seems to me anyway that's a blame movement, is one part of the story, and I would like both sides to look and say, so what's my part in it? Now what what am I doing that's making this happen? Why am I choosing a man who is violent and why do I then move to another man who's violent if that's what I'm doing? You know? And so the conversation then becomes, so if I own my part and you own your part, then we can do something about it. But if I'm blaming you and you're blaming me, then nothing really changes. It's not going to change. Okay, so the Me Too movement as a blame movement and asking people in abusive relationships to take responsibility for that violence... As you can imagine, I disagree really strongly with pretty much everything that got said there. But I wasn't in the room to say that. The thing is, that whole episode was about getting everyone to the table so we can talk openly instead of just reacting. So I asked John to come back and have a longer conversation with myself and Brian, as well as Eleanor Butterworth. She's the Respect and Responsibility Project Manager for New Zealand Rugby. If what you enjoy about Bang is the carefully crafted and produced stories, this isn't that. It's just a chat between four people who view things pretty differently, trying, I hope, to hear what the others have to say. I started by asking John Brewerton how he came to take his position. I think as a man, that as soon as, if I I identify myself as a male, Mm. then as soon as masculinity is being challenged, I feel I have to take it personally. I think a number of men will think the same. They'll feel blamed for the fact that they're men. They may not be the bad men. They may be the bad men because you know, statistics would say there's a number of them out there. Mm. Um, but as a group, then there's definitely possibilities about what that would mean for men in general. Yeah, I um, when when I have you know challenged or attempted to dissect or understand masculinity, I've noted every now and then defensiveness and I liken it to the defensiveness that I've felt because as you know as a feminist I've felt a bit when I've been challenged by women of color about how my feminism maybe isn't inclusive and the initial response to anything like that is 
but not me. Like, aren't we all in this together? But I've really, I feel like I've had to move past that. And on the other side of that is some, is some really good stuff. But um, I don't know, like Brian, so you didn't get a chance to respond to that on air at no, the time. No, But um, how, how do you feel about the idea of me or me too being a blame movement? Or is that something that part of that could resonate with you or where, where are you? I think whether it's a, a blame movement or not, um, if you want to couch it in those terms, is, is to some extent less relevant than its purpose, which is to support women, women supporting each other, who have been subjected to harassment and violence and in the past have not felt that they've been able to speak up about that, having the confidence and the belief that they can speak up and have that taken seriously. Now, whether some men feel that as a blame movement or not, I mean, I personally don't. I, I don't feel a need to get defensive about Me Too. To some extent, I've felt that this is something that's been coming for a while, and I'm glad that it's out there, really. I mean, I think that there's a lot of stuff that's been happening behind the scenes that women seem to have been putting up with, which I'm glad they're now deciding they don't want to put up with anymore. I think the issue is what we do about, about the problem now and what we do about it in the future. And I think, John, when you responded that way and said that, are you saying that you think it has no validity or just that you feel that the movement itself is criticising all men? Is that how you felt or how you feel a lot of men feel? I think it's, um, it has uh, total internal validity woman I you know I think everyone should have a voice but saying that I don't but saying and men also have a voice and so and not at the level of patriarchal masculinity you know it's not at that level because everyone's an individual so if the me too movement excludes men and I didn't hear any men say I've been abused but I haven't covered the range of the discourse then um, something's missing, you know, and so I'd be, I think, wanting to be more inclusive mm. than less inclusive. And I think um, I'm going to pass over to you now, Eleanor, but I think it's worth saying that the Me Too movement, I, I mean, as far as I know, I did see men being involved in that conversation as well and saying that this is There were one or two texts we got during that discussion, I think, as well. Right. From men saying, what about abuse of men by female partners? Eleanor, what are your initial reactions to the conversation? The first thing I want to say is um, this is really positive to me to have this mm. conversation. Um, I do a lot of healthy relationship workshops and something that I often say to people in those is we talk about fighting and what does good healthy fighting look like. And one of the things that I always say is the purpose to me of a good argument is to try and understand each other more, not to win. So I really like this. That's my, you know, my kind of first thing. Um, for me, it's interesting, the Me Too movement, I've not really thought about it in relation to men so much because to me it was such a movement about women having visibility. So all those hidden experiences, or not even hidden, but disempowered experiences, and just normalised? Yeah, yeah. Suddenly there was enough mass to be able to put those out on the table. And for me, one of the big things about the Me Too movement, including harassment, not just sexual assault, was us raising our bar from what we consider 
unacceptable from what's just criminally unacceptable to what's just harmful. And the Me Too kind of gave some visibility and some voice to that. And I think one of the challenges for the Me Too is it makes people look back on behaviours that they've used and assumptions that they've made and be like, oh no, what yeah. if I what if I hurt somebody? Or, you know, what if what if I was wrong to call out to that girl on the street or mm. that sort of thing. One of the things that I find doing this sort of sex ed is I often will have people come up to me afterwards and be like, man, do you know, I've never thought about the fact that when I was 14 and someone pressed up, you know, pressed their erection into me on a train, I never thought to feel angry about that. I never thought to see that as harmful. Um, it just was how it was. And I think it lets people kind of go back and be like, oh, yeah, this mm. collection of experiences wasn't wasn't okay for me. Mm. Um, yeah, and you can see why, especially for men, if they are feeling like, for the most part, the people we're seeing as on the other side of the Me Too movement, the people that are the harm doers, feel the weight of all of that harm be attached to your gender, then an easy reaction, or the, you can see why people would shut down. You can see why men would be like, I don't feel like I can get involved in this conversation. It's better to just, like, hunker down and wait for this one to blow over. Yeah, and I think, you know, you're saying about the defensiveness because we all sit in positions where we have more power than another group or mm. um, that sort of thing. And I think, like, once you move past that defensiveness, then there's the chance to be like, this is the way I could use my position mm. for good. Because what we know is actually most men are not okay with violence and most men do not use violence. But the challenge that we have is also that for a lot of men, they don't feel like they can talk to other men about the language they're using or the banter. And actually, that's that's the big missing bit, but that's also the big empowering bit to me. And that, that's the sort of thing you've been trying to do with, with your group, isn't it, John? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was interesting. Something occurred to me listening to Eleanor, um, and that was, and as I said, and, and Melody agreed, we always get a text or two from when we talk about sexual harassment and violence about somebody saying, what about female violence to men? But there's another thing, which I think is, in terms of my own experience as, as a male growing up, which I think is more, was so more pre prevalent when I was a teenager, and that is the pressure, the peer pressure that boys and young men put on each other to be masculine in certain ways. And I can look back and think about some of the things that I saw done to other boys and think, I wished I'd stepped in and stood up for that boy. Mm. What about you, John? I think the difficulty that we're going to have is if we keep as a society saying, what I see is the problem, doesn't address what actually is the problem. If you know what I mean, you need to step back from the behaviour and say what sits underneath the behaviour. And mm. if I can love the person who's giving that behaviour, even, even without their behaviour, then we've got some chance of making some change. Uh, that seems to me at both sides of the table that both men and women uh, would do well to look at each of their behaviours and say, so what is it in me that makes this alive and what am I trying to hide or cover or mm. feel uncomfortable with? And that, yeah, that's definitely what I felt at that pub in the Coromandel was, um, you know, these things that were being said were the kinds of things that if they were said on the internet to me, I would be like, I'm out of here. This is, you know, 
misogynist out of here. But because we were face to face and I could, I, their humanity was right in front of me. I really, I, I don't know if I really vocalised it enough in that episode, but I really liked those guys. We I were such tell you great could. mates by the and end. I, and I could tell that they liked you. Yeah, I know. And But that's the thing. We would never have hurt each other on the internet. We had to be at that pub over a beer in their environment, environment probably. Yeah. And we otherwise we would never have hurt each other. You know, one of the things we have to get over as a society in order to deal with this is this idea that people are either good or evil, that they're monsters or they, you know, or, or not. And because what how I always saw that playing out was that when someone used a harmful behaviour, then we applied the monster test. Like, are they all bad? Are they... You know, are they driving a panel van? Are they, you know, those sorts of things. And when we inevitably come up with the fact, actually, no, this this person has some really good traits as, as someone that I love as well, mm. then what happens is then we're not able to create accountability. And, you know, something that I, you know, really believe is if you're the person that has been harmed, you have that right to feel about that person however you want. You can hope that they are locked up, thrown away the key, all of those sorts of things. But as communities and as families, the things that create change is that accountability, but with love. You know, people don't change purely from a place of shame or, yeah. That's a big difference though, isn't it? Because on an individual level, you can't expect people who have been victimised or marginalised to do that work. And you can still have like a survivor-centric approach. Yes, yeah. Where, you know, because the reality is, is we don't ostracise people who have got concerning behaviours. What we do instead is we say, well, the victim must be lying. And that's not good for anyone. The thing about positioning the Me Too as a, bla- as a blame movement that I personally couldn't get my head around was that, you know, I, through, through that whole thing, saw friends and workmates and family members all sharing their stories with the hashtag me too or even if not sharing their stories saying just saying me too not one of them mentioned the person who had harmed them or a person who have, has harmed them so you know it's not the you too movement that's what was happening in my head it's not the you too movement it's the me too movement it's about like yeah. us all looking around and and seeing each other and feeling strengthened by that the number of people who have caused harm versus the number of people that have gone to jail for that harm is so it's such a huge difference that I can't I find it really hard to, to see it as a blame movement understand that and I've also been to conferences where men I don't really like going there because it doesn't add anything to the conversation because I can say I'm a victim too and you can say you're a victim and then we've already created a victim culture and it's the victim culture is rising in this country in my opinion Actually, in life, you could say to yourself, you've had experiences that you didn't like. I don't, haven't heard any human being say they've never had a bad experience from the more mundane to the criminal mm. on both sides of the fence. And, um, you know, if you look at the men who have deep criminal, you know, killed people in that, the backgrounds of them are horrendous. They didn't get there because they were being loved to death. They got there because they were hated, you know, in some way and mistreated. And they were by both parties, potentially, and then by their grandparents. So it goes linearly back centuries. And this me or you, nil sum game kind of place that we could play in, doesn't, it's not going to help anyone. It's not going to help us. It's not going to help men. And I don't think it will help women. That's my You said concern. something the last time we had you on, John, which 
I didn't have time. I wanted to discuss a bit further, but we just didn't have time, which is um, you asked the question, why do women sometimes end up going back into another abusive relationship? The quote was was something along the lines of um, men need to look at their behaviour, but and then this is the direct quote, both sides need to look and say, what's my partner, what am I doing? That's making this happen. Why am I choosing a man who's violent and why do I then move to another man who's violent? Which, like, I know, I can, I know what you mean when you're saying, like, we have all experienced harm being done to us, but I don't know where the accountability is, is in that. Because if we're just saying, well, we've all been hurt, you know, this isn't, this isn't getting anywhere. Like, I guess there's degrees of harm is one thing to consider. And then there's also, like, at what point people need to be held accountable for the things that they've done. Well, my question to you would be, do you think society can do any more harm or make any person accountable that they're not already feel accountable for? Do you think their behaviours come from a place of purity? I, I don't see it. Mm. And so accountability is an it's a interesting concept. And um, both sides made decisions about how they got together. They, it didn't come out of nowhere. Women weren't standing there in neutrality. And so those, that, that dynamic of violence and abuse has different layers in it. And I presume you would have a good understanding of that, Eleanor, you know, and where you go with that. Oh, there's so many different layers to it. Uh, I, you know, I think the first thing is that really common dynamic in an abusive relationship is that it doesn't start off abusive. Usually it starts off with a really strong courtship period. Again, I'm doing my little inverted commas. So it's not just I've met you and we're thinking about a relationship and we're ticking along. It's like I've met you and something feels different about this. You feel like the person I can open up to, that I can trust. We, you know, we're sharing all of these things. And, and often one of the traits of relationships that end up violent is that intense period and that they often move faster. There is all that love and there is all that hope and you come together and you want all of these things to be true and gradually the violence or verbal abuse or those sorts of things start layering in and at first it feels like a one-off or it feels like, you know, that's strange, you know, or that sort of thing and gradually people kind of get acclimatised to it and something that I often saw when people came to refuge is they would say, oh, I might not be you guys. And then they would describe stuff that were really clearly abuse or people saying, well, there wasn't really physical violence. And it's like, okay, well, track me back what the last few weeks. And you'd find people who said that, like one person who said that had had their arm broken by their partner or, you know, because what's normal changes. So I think there's all these different layers to it. Like there is that layer of fear and those sorts of things and the practicality of leaving any relationship, but also the fact that someone leaving a violent relationship is in more danger at the point that they leave. So often the reason why someone's staying is because they've kind of accurately assessed what might happen if they leave. Um, you know, if you look at the intimate partner homicides in New Zealand, the majority of them is like there's been court action or there's been an attempt at separation leading up to it. So there's there's that, there's the fact that somebody, um, most of the families that I worked with at Refuge, their partner continued to have unsupervised access to the kids. So it can also be like, well, I need to be here because 
I'm kind of a, a buffer between mm. the kids and, you know, and this kind of ex- explosive stuff that's happening. Um, so there's so many dynamics, but there's also one of the things that we often forget is that people often have a lot of hope and love for their partners. So they often really hope that that person that they met back at the beginning is still there, that compassion. And in terms of people going through multiple partners, I mean, not everyone does go into lots of relationships where there is abuse, but there's about there's a quite a strong correlation between people who experience childhood sexual abuse and people who experience violent relationships, and that's that cumulative effect, which mm. I think, you know, builds into that Me Too movement in the sense of it's not really so much about individual acts of harm, it's like the the lifetime of small ways that, you know, your rights and your body and those sorts of things have been eroded. Mm. Um, and that can open the door to other types of harm coming in, you know. So it is it is, it is really complex. And, and I also, like I do really strongly believe that we can understand the gendered nature of violence while also acknowledging and recognising and making sure there's support for the number of men who have been childhood victims of domestic violence, who have been victims of sexual abuse, those things, like if we're going to create a violence-free world, looking at everyone's experiences is part of that. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're saying, is that we need to understand all of the things that, that the history that leads both of these people to be in these position, positions. So I understand why you're saying that, and I agree. Like, I'm sure that, I don't know the research, you'll know the research, but the majority of Men who end up in these positions, there's a lot of factors that will come into play that make them more likely to be violent offenders or whatever in their upbringing. But do you also understand, having heard that that women are more likely to be harmed or killed in the immediate process following a, a separation or following some kind of court action, that saying what's my part in it, telling them that they need to look at what their part is in and, and what they're doing that's making this happen to them could be like potentially quite almost dangerous for women to hear that. That's why I was like, we have to have this conversation. I don't want any woman out there who's in a situation now thinking, I want to get out of here, but I'm fearing for my children, I'm fearing for my safety to think, then, oh shit, like what's my part in this? What did I do to get myself here? I don't think that's a valid use of their time. I also think, sorry, just to jump in, I also think actually women are already doing that. When yeah, they're in I'm a violent sure relationship, are. I'm sure they, are. they will totally be like, what can I do yeah, of that makes this different? Mm. Like what, you know, are there ways I can be a better partner? Are there ways I can make the kids quieter, make the house cleaner? Of you know, course. like there's there's no way to clean a house that will stop someone using abuse against you if that's, mm. if, if that's how they interact with you. Yeah. What are you thinking, John? Well, I'm thinking, it's, you know, when you said the only thing you can control and in reality or however you view the world the only thing you've got control of is yourself you've got no control of anyone else or anything else and so at some point not at the point where you're about to be murdered or you're about to be separated or you know that's clearly not the point but at some point as a human I have to look at and say I I'm in control of myself and therefore what do I need to keep doing to be okay in the world. But there's something about, I think, you know, if you've been brought up in, a, in the, the research that says it's, I think there's three things that have a very high determinant rate of um, IPV, certainly, that um, if you've had any of those factors, the chances that you will be abused or abusive are really, really high. Sorry, IPV? What does that uh, mean? Interpartner violence. Right. 
something about those experience of someone who's been a victim and someone who's been a been um, an abuser will come together mm. at some point. That tends to happen. How that happens, I have no idea. But I wonder, because part of what I think you're saying is that as an individual who has control over their life at some point in that earlier phase, potentially when first incidences occur, you should be able to be like, okay, well, this is the point where I'm kind of out of here. And if you don't do that, then you should be able to look at yourself and wonder why not. But if those things have put you on that track, then then you're, you know, if you've got those three things you just mentioned that are going to make you more likely to be in a relationship like that, then that choice isn't as clear-cut as it would be for you, potentially, or someone who hasn't experienced this. I also think there's a difference between prevention before anything's happened and responding afterwards. And I think absolutely we teach our young people about warning signs in relationships and respect in relationships and the things they deserve in relationships, and we do that so that they will be equipped and feel like if someone's not treating them well, they'll pick that up. That's like, you know, kind of classic primary prevention work. But in terms of a response for violence that's already occurring, we have to go to the cause of that, and the cause of that sits with the person who's using the violence. And I think that's, you know, that to me is the issue with uh, if she left, this problem would be sorted because actually... It wouldn't be sorted because there's no less people in the world using abusive behaviour. It's just a changing cast of who's getting abused. And like that's that's not going to give us a violence-free sort of future. It's like, mm. yeah. So you do that prevention stuff because we know that's important. But in terms of where harm's happening, it's important that we hold that line that ultimately what stops the harm is the person stopping the harm. <laughs> so. we, do we not have a responsibility to choose other ways of coping with a stressful situation than using violence against others? John? If you know that, yes. Uh, you know, if you've been brought up in a violent family, of course you've got no other way. I'm, I'm the sole product of my mother and my father and um, their behaviours became my behaviours until I got old enough to start modifying them from what I know. So, you know, I, that's a difficult... And, and it's that where men have to help men and to say, look, that's not the way you, you, that's not the way you cope. Absolutely. It's, you know, in some ways what I would like to see occur is that men stand up instead of run away, you know. If, if we're part of the problem, and we are, I'm not saying we're not, then we have to be part of the solution. Totally. Clearly. And, you know... I guess what I'd like to see is while there is also the support that sits around women who need that, mm. what is the support that says as a group? So what are we doing as a group of women that might be supporting this? What are, what are our behaviours as a group? Not in the violent moment, but, you know, at some point. If I've been in, what are those things that, and maybe they're already happening. There might be hundreds of and those types of groups out there. patriarchy. <laughs> patriarchy. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's what I think when I hear, like, I what are those behaviours that you're doing? For example, when I had an old dude, like, grab my ass on the bus, I got off the bus shaking and scared, and then the anger came, and then all the things I should have said and done on the bus came. Sure. Because, I'd, I, I mean, I kind of feel like I'd been set up over my life to just take that and not make a fuss, yeah? So, like... That's what I mean when I whisper the patriarchy into my microphone. Like and, I, I and that's feel like I'm equipped to act in And that I moment. think where if if I was a man and saw and witnessed that, I would be saying to that bloke, 
You take your hands off her now. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> I wish you'd been there, but if it ever happens again, I know exactly what to do. Yeah, well, well, if it happens again, I know what you'll do too, Melody. You'll turn around and you'll give her a good telling off. <laughs> Thank you. And that's right. You know, that doesn't happen. Bystander, whatever that theory is. Mm, intervention, bystander Inter- intervention. Yeah, it just doesn't happen. Bystander, yeah. Yeah. It's an interest, you know, and people don't want to get involved for whatever reason. And I think we do, as men, need to stand up and say it's not acceptable Here's some better ways of growing up young fellas to say this is an appropriate way to date, this is an appropriate way to be in a relationship, and it will come from love. It won't come from yeah, a yeah. different and system. And I, I do think teen boys, and maybe they've changed, but I'm not sure they have, that's where a bit of the brutalisation starts to happen. I don't think men yet talk enough about the pressure that they put mm. on each other to be macho. Oh, and, and that was so amazing in that in that pub, Brian, because the moment one of them got vulnerable, the others were all on talking about, like, what a pussy they were for their car and, like, the car they drove. And it was amazing how well it was policed within the man the, the man group, the man card police. The interesting dynamic was that be serious, have a joke. Be serious, have a joke in that pub conversation. And, yeah. and I think that I can, I think, yeah, to be too serious all the time, I don't know, mm. I can't speak for women, but I think a lot of us blokes start to think, oh, that's a bit of a bore. I don't agree with you, Brian, on that particular point. The joke actually is to cover the vulnerability that sits underneath it. Yeah. And okay. if if a vulnerable man tells other men about their, his vulnerability, it cascades into places that men really historically hate because they've been told not to cry, they've been told to man up. Inverted commas. More air quotes. Yeah. You need like a sound effect for yeah. air quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it's just, it keeps the problem of male vulnerability hidden in the shell of so-called humour, you know. Mm. And um, yeah. And you, as soon as I hear men being humorous in the situation that you had, Melody, then I know there's something underneath that. Mm. And um, what we do within Essentially Men is to say, okay, we hear that, and now we're going to look in underneath and say, so what's really going on? Yeah, but it's it's the context, isn't it? Because oh, at absolutely. the pub, I was uh, that that wouldn't have worked that well. I, no, that's right. They would have booted me out <laughs> if I'd been like enough laughs, dudes. But but, but men come to that. They're you coming know? to you kind of with an expectation that they might have to do some of that. Maybe. Well, not necessarily because yeah. we don't give them a whole lot of information about right. what we're going to do. Mm. So they've been told, or they see another man who's been on our course, and they're different. Yeah, and right. they know they've been different, so they kind of go get interested. And so the guy who's done it said, you have to do it. You have to come to this course. It's amazing. Mm. And then they turn up and then they go on Friday night, they're scared, rigid, and then they become amazing. You know, they become amazingly loving and get into their emotional lives. So it's a, it's a cover that most men throw out. And I think the wolf whistle is the cover and a whole lot of those things. When you get to any form of physicality, that's, that's a different game. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think men And John, are, when, they, when they joke, then how do you respond then, John, if you know there's something underneath? Because I'm the facilitator, I tend to just move in closer. If you want to get into a relationship with a man, just get a bit closer to him. Um, and obviously in a group process, it's a bit different. So it might be though to say, so, you know, that laughter, my experience of that laughter is that's something that sits underneath that, you know, someone's vulnerability has um, raised some form of shame and so, you know, what's that, what's that yeah. for you? What's going on? Mm. And often men will just be, because they've heard them, they'll uh, respond, and they'll respond in a way that's a bit deeper, and that's the way in. Uh, I think it's a really a really good point. One of the things we know about people who 
use violence as you know we talk about it being a learned behavior and and the place we tend to go is that's learned in childhood but it's also for you know not everyone who's experienced violence in childhood will go on to use it some people it's learned in adolescence and that sort of thing and a lot of that is around if I say this sexist thing or if I make this rape joke will people reinforce that that's an okay behavior or not and I think you know what you're talking about is like getting underneath some of those things and and helping people to be comfortable with that vulnerability and the way that men talk to each other. And that is a really, you know, it really has a strong correlation with protective factors for ending violence, you know. If if all men had that ability to talk with each other and, you know, go a bit deeper and have that conversation about why that joke made me uncomfortable or those sorts yeah. of things. That would be a really, you know, and that's that stuff where, you know, like I was saying with me too, and, you know, this stuff is good for men and women. It's what's good for everybody. So, mm. Going into making that episode, I essentially thought that, and especially that conversation in the pub, I, I basically had, as we all do, have a lot of ego going into things and thinking, like, I'm going to come out and they're going to see my side of things. And, and it wasn't until afterwards that I realised that I, I'd actually learned a lot from them. And one thing was that, you know, when someone, like, on the internet, especially a man, is like, feminism doesn't think about men. Like, and then you do that really annoying thing I now see as annoying where you quote the definition of feminism as <laughs> equality and you're like, well, actually, feminism means equality. So, like, you know, I win. I'm out of here. I realised, talking to those men, that the well-being of men wasn't really part of my feminism. Like, I, I really, like, I knew male suicide in this country was bad, but I was not out there advocating on behalf of men. I was using that definition as a way to shut people up. And I wasn't really making room for men within my feminism. And that's, man, not everyone's going to have, be able to do that, especially really people who've been really marginalised or vulnerable over their lives. But that's something that I've realised that I have to do. But what I want to know, like I, and I'm doing that and I'm working on it, but I kind of need to know, I need to see like signs of goodwill from, and I don't want to say the other side because this isn't about sides, but I want to, like I feel like I'm really listening and trying to learn and I just want to know that... I'm also being heard. Certainly, men struggle to listen. You know, that's part of. <laughs> Glad you said it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not a school you get taught. There's no education on how to um, engage with yourself emotionally, and uh, so men just make it up, and they make it up. Well, they're supposed to make it up from their fathers, but you know, masculinity's been absent from fathering for quite a long time, um, and there aren't a whole lot of really good male role models. What do we take as masculinity? We take competition. We take isolation. My job's going to be better than your job. It's all about money. We talk about, obviously, sport and things like that. And then our whole culture tries to make men into these teenagers again. And there's nothing much in that for, for men who are looking for more than that. So they get to a certain age, maybe 30s to 50s, and they say, my life's been working and being this boyish thing. And is that, it's not it's just not enough when something goes wrong and lots of you know, things go wrong. Um, and so they have to start looking and say, I've got to be more than just that identity in the same way that women are saying, I have to be more than mm. a marginalised identity. One of the things that I find in my job now, you know, now that I'm in an environment that is mostly men in terms of playing teams, people often really do want to have those conversations. But 
is, is there a way into those conversations, you know, and which it sounds like your organisation does is creating a space, you know, where there's a way in, you know, and so are the forums where we're having conversations about masculinity, are they accessible to everybody? Or like when you went to the pub, hey, yeah. you got to have that the conversation. The next one I need to do is a locker room, like locker room <laughs> banter, but, but with me there. Mm. Okay, season three. We did get one text from from a, a bloke, or it was an email, um, which was interesting. Um, it was from a, a guy called Michael. I guess Michael picked up on some of the stuff we've been talking about and maybe another thing which is the people, male and female, uh, find a bit bewildering is which is the rate of change and how how different things are now in terms of what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable and, and even in one of the, you had that fascinating discussion on, on non, non-binary. But anyway, he wrote this masculinity as a boy growing up in a single parent home. I witnessed how difficult it was for my mother to get ahead in a male-dominated world. I've always pushed for male-slash-female equality. Equally yet, is what he writes, yet now it seems that feminism and female dominance is the world we live in. It seems to be frowned upon to be a proud male. The same can be said of being heterosexual. Are all heterosexual males supposed to evaporate to make way for alpha females and LGBTs? Where's the equality when certain sectors of society are pushed down to uplift our sectors? It should not be war of the sexes. It should be equally for all and everyone should be able to stand to and be proud of who they are. So that's that's what Michael had to say and I, I'd be interested to see what how you feel about that. I don't want those men to evaporate. I, I, I love men. They're you know, brilliant and also... Um you know, we need them for the sperm. So I don't want them to, that was a joke. I don't want them to evaporate. It's like a step aside. It's like a make a little room, isn't it? It's not like evaporate. It's like, just can we all kind of just get in here together? But some men will f- feel that as being pushed out, potentially. Where do you make the room from would be the question, you know. How do you, how do you support men to be able to step aside from just being the job? I mean, I do have problems with equality when you speak about equality because then I think, well, what's the range of what you're speaking to of equality? Because there are some things that are clearly women are disadvantaged and there are clearly things that men are disadvantaged in. Mm. So if one side, Michael, might be for you is about coming up in income and respect, then potentially men might come down or up in thinking about how to be emotionally connected. But it's not a finite resource, any of this, is it? Like, can't we all just up, go up in all the good ones and come down in all the bad ones? There's not a finite amount of... I mean, obviously, there's a finite amount of job opportunities at the top. But aside Certainly. from that, like, if, well, if women's emotional well-being gets better, that doesn't mean men have to then go get less. Yeah. I mean, my own experience is it uh, is not like Michael's. My experience is that there's still many places where it's easier in life to be a male than to be a female. That's that. I still think that there's a bit of lot of change to come. I think that's why one of the reasons that I'm so happy we have a prime minister that is having a baby at home, and we're going to have a stay-at-home dad helping to bring up the kid. I think that's one of the best things that happened in ages, because it means there's not so much pressure on the bloke to be the the breadwinner. And I think a lot of blokes would be quite happy not to have to be the breadwinner, actually. It's that thing that our expert talked about, about masculinities and the move to masculinities, multiple versions of what a man and what a good man looks like. Yeah, and that's another good one to add to the basket. Indeed. Um, We're going to have to wrap up in a minute, but I did just uh, remember something which was this 
guy who was talking, it was on another podcast about masculinity that I was listening to, because this is being talked about a lot. This guy was talking about how now, um, you know, he'll be at work and he'll say to a female colleague, like, oh, what a great dress. And then he spends a day thinking about whether that was harassment, whether that was appropriate. And and I think that's a bit of what we're dealing with, isn't it? It's things have changed so quickly. You know, there's some people who will be like, well, you know, it's just common sense. Like, you know, depending on your relationship with that person, it's just common sense. But I think it is more complicated than that. And I hate the idea of, like, please tell me my dress is awesome at work. I hate the idea of you, like, worrying about that all day long. Brian's really good at that. So what can we tell them about how to act in this big new world? What do you think, Eleanor? Yeah, it's interesting. I was having this conversation with someone recently because um, we were talking about sexual harassment training and someone was saying, it's really hard now because it used to be fine to like give someone a pat on the bum. And I was like, pretty sure women have never been down with like, Probably being wasn't harassed. Probably as fine as you thought it was, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was interesting, like, um, over Christmas I watched that Dolly Parton movie Nine Till Five. Have you guys seen that? Oh, does she get a pat on the bum? Oh, no, it's about their rage at the sexual harassment oh, wow, they're okay. experiencing in their work. And it's like, isn't that interesting? We feel like this movement is new, yet here's this movie from 1980 where they're fantasising about killing their boss that sexually <laughs> harasses them. That's not an endorsement. And no, 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 no. no. <laughs> but But what it struck to me is like actually women have been trying to gather this response for a long time and been putting up a resistance to this for a long time. I think it feels new because we've... Uh, There's you a know, spotlight on it. Yeah, yeah, we've moved forward, but mm. it's, it's a continuation of, of stuff that's always happened and I don't think there is like an easy answer. I think what you're saying about like how do we support everyone to be cued into like emotions, the emotions of others, empathy for others, being able to read those things, that, that stuff does sit along. You know, when people say, I can't tell the difference between sexual harassment and flirting, it's like, yeah, the, that, that crux is about power, but also about how How well how tuned in you are to the other yeah. person. And that's, as you kind of mentioned before, something that maybe men aren't raised to be as in tune with. Those men who come to your group and who are opened up to the possibility of dealing with their stress, with things that aren't going well, with, without resorting to violence, they find that their worlds, that they're more free. That's an interesting concept. Um, my experience of personal growth is that it's a process. And so if I provide someone with an experience they haven't had, then there's two things that generally happen. They either keep using that experience and learn from it, or they discard it. And there's nothing I can do about that. <laughs> All we can do is offer them the experience. And um, that tends to be what happens. So if it fits into their way of life or their reason for being or a way that they see that it adds value to their life, they'll keep using it. And if they don't, because they're caught up in whatever else, then they tend to not. Um, but lots of them haven't had the conversations like that before, and we give them ideas about how to just be able to talk for three or four minutes and say, this is what's underneath all of the you know, mundane world. Here's the three things that might be really important to me, challenges I have in my life. And the other man just listens to them, and then at the end of that, they swap over, and, and they've had now a mutual connection about, and there's so much commonality that, it's amazing. And so they start to find ways to connect together. I just think that I've come out of this with a great degree of, degree of optimism. 
Um, I've enjoyed listening to Eleanor and John, and I I disagree with with those who feel that it's that the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I think there's still a lot that needs to be done for us to have true equality. But I we're getting there. I think there's there are a few men, um, good men, who are bewildered. But I think that um, if we keep on talking, we're going to get there. I think that um, from what I've heard from Eleanor and John today, there's a lot that people have in common. And in the end, we are people. Ending that conversation is RNZ Knight's host, Brian Crump, who I advise to never join Twitter so he can keep hold of that refreshing optimism. We were also joined by Eleanor Butterworth, the Respect and Responsibility Project Manager for New Zealand Rugby, and John Brewerton from the Essentially Men Trust. Feel free to send any feedback on this episode and any of the other episodes to bang at radionz.co.nz and let us know if you have your own story to share. 